Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of The Week. Linda Chavez was supposed to be here, but she is in Ireland, and the internet did not cooperate, so we will talk with her next week. But we are delighted to welcome our special guest, Yasha Monk, professor editor, author of a new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. So welcome, one and all. Yasha, I'm so glad that we have you because this book is so timely. You tend to be sort of on the cusp of whatever the news is, the rise of populism around the globe, and you address that a bit in the book. But um This is about ethnic diversity and whether it poses a threat to democracies, which you say tend to be pretty monochromatic, or at least to begin that way. So why don't you tell us the thesis of the book? And then if you wouldn't mind touching on one story that I found very interesting about ethnic differences and the different ways these two ethnic groups interact in Malawi versus Zambia. Sounds great. All right, let me try and do that without taking over the whole conversation. Um, (laughs) Listen, so your characterization of this current moment was exactly right. We have historically a bunch of democracies like the United States that have always been somewhat ethnically and religiously diverse, but which used to exclude many people from full participation in the polity, some people in most extreme ways, as in the case of chattel slavery. Then you have many other democracies, like Germany, where I grew up, which were very homogeneous at the moment of their founding. When democracy took root in Germany after World War II, the country was, because of the horrible crimes and genocides of the first half of the 20th century, very ethnically and religiously homogeneous. And so what all of these democracies now share is that for the first time in their histories, they have become A, deeply ethnically and religiously diverse, and B, at the same time, are actually trying to treat everybody as true equals. How it is that we can make this work. Now, I think in the way that people often think about this topic, they start from a point of what I would call naive optimism. So they say, look, how hard can it be for people to get along? How hard can it be not to hate your neighbor or not to be a bigot? And and when they look at the current state of society, which obviously has a lot of problems and injustices, and they say, well, if we're failing at this easy task, how can we possibly have hope for the future? And in my book, I actually start in the opposite way. I start by outlining why this great experiment, why building these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies is actually incredibly hard to do. And that, I think, can lead us to a hard one: optimism. So so here are three reasons for why this is actually really hard. The first is I teach at Johns Hopkins and, uh, you know, I have a very, very diverse campus and some students who think of themselves as the most tolerant people in the world. And in many ways they are, in some ways perhaps they're not. But uh, when I ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich and have them debate that question for a few minutes, they're a little confused at first of why they should debate it and when they really get into it. Those who say that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate in a game I haven't played against those who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. And this is typical of humans more broadly. We have this really strong tendency to form groups, to favor those who are members of them and to discriminate against outsiders. And then the second point is that in real life, in real politics, those lines of division can be about all kinds of arbitrary things, the Gelfs and the Ghibellines in the Middle Ages. But a lot of the time, It is along the lines of a kind of diversity we now have, along ethnic and religious lines, national and linguistic lines, uh, along the lines of culture and creed. And that has historically explained some of the worst crimes that humanity has committed. And then finally, you know, as somebody whose last book is about the threat to democracy from authoritarian populism, as somebody who deeply believes in the values of democratic republics or liberal democracies, whatever phrase you prefer, I thought that perhaps democratic institutions could help to save us. But actually, democracy makes 
some things harder, at least in certain respects. So in a monarchy, you and I both don't have any political power. And we have to trust the monarch to tolerate both of us. And if you have more kids or there's more immigrants who look like you rather than me, it doesn't really affect my political standing. A democracy is always also a search for majorities. And so uh, if you have more kids or your demographic group is growing more quickly, I might have this fear that the dominant position that I used to enjoy in society is going to be taken away from me and that's going to change everything. And uh, perhaps that's really scary. And we're seeing on the far right, and we saw in certain respects with this terrible domestic terrorist in Buffalo, what kind of consequences that fear can have. And so all of those are reasons to take the difficulty of building diverse democracies really seriously. But I think then look at present reality from that point of view. You can recognize that we're doing pretty well by comparison to many societies around the world, very well uh, in comparison to our own history. But we've made real progress and that we can continue to make progress if we act in the right ways. So, yeah, it was really valuable that you made that point, Yasha, that actually in the United States and you draw upon other uh, countries' experiences too, we're actually doing quite well or immigrants are doing very well in our countries. They are thriving. Their children tend to get educated and they get along. And this is something that doesn't get recognized often enough. So thank you for making that point and for making those international comparisons as well. And uh, we will continue with this conversation after this short break. Ladies, are you dreaming those bags under your eyes would just disappear? Then stop dreaming, pick up the phone, and order Genucel now. Genucel uses plant stem cell technology to help rid your beautiful face of unsightly bags and puffiness. Yes, even the ones you've had for years. Lois from Smithtown, New York wrote, I love it and use it every day. I would say the change is remarkable. It's not just Lois. I use it and it's great. It firms up the delicate skin around your eyes. And you know what's even better? Genucel works for both men and women. In fact, with its immediate effects, you may see results in as little as 12 hours. Order now and save up to 60% off on Genucel's most popular package at genucel.com. You be the judge. It's the best skincare you've ever used or your money back. Just go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. That's genucel.com slash beg to differ. The best skincare, the best results, or your money back, no questions asked. genucel.com slash beg to differ. genucel.com slash beg to differ. One more time, genucel.com slash beg to differ. All right, we are back. And now I'd like to bring in our panel. I'm going to start with Bill Galston. I have a question, Yasha, about the overall rubric of multi-ethnic democracies and how well it helps us to understand the specificities of the American case. Because it seems to me that there is a big difference between the way the United States has been able to do with waves of immigrants from different countries, different parts of the world, et cetera, as opposed to the way that we've had to deal with what might be called homegrown diversity. We have a very special and distinctive dyad in this country, black and white. And a lot of immigrant groups define themselves in relationship to that dyad and do the best they can to get on what they think society regards as the desirable side of that dyad. So you see articles like how Hungarians became white, but you could write articles like that about all sorts of immigrant groups in American society, including most recently, quite possibly Latinos. So how can we account for and how do you explain the specificity of the American experience, which is both an immigrant experience and a formerly enslaved people experience? 
Oh, and Yasha, before you reply, can I just tack on to Bill's question a quotation that I wanted to read from Benjamin Franklin, who said this about immigrants. He said, the Spaniards, Italians, French, Russians, and Swedes are generally of what we call a swarthy complexion, as are the Germans also, the Saxons only accepted, unquote. Now, that is evidence, isn't it, of how even our perception of what skin color is changes. Yeah, so I think that there's two things to say here. The first is that the terms of the American debate uh, tend to be, if you excuse the polite insult from an immigrant, a little bit provincial. That Americans tend to think of the country as completely sui generis. And when they are trying to understand the complexities of race relations in the United States, which obviously have their own history, I actually think they tend to look too little at the way in which other countries have had similar experiences or the way in which the different experiences of other countries can inform how we should understand American society. And so in this book, I'm really trying to say, hey, let us look at this topic more broadly, because the United States is not the only country that's going through some of these changes and transformations, and bring back to the American discourse some of those insights. So in that respect, I think it's actually really important to put the specifically American attributes into this larger historical and comparative framework. Now, Having said that, it's true that each country has its own specificities and you should be aware of them. And I speak at length in the book about the fact that of the sort of three main modes of failure of diverse societies, which I identify in the book, uh, one has historically been dominant or most important in the United States. And that is the dominance that one group has exerted over others. And in particular, the way in which African-Americans have been enslaved for many centuries in which that continues to shape the country today, whether socioeconomically in terms of the neighborhoods with compounded disadvantage in which many, for not most, African-Americans now live, or whether in the very way we talk about ethnicity, the use of the term race, which is normal in the United States, but treated as much more questionable in much of Europe, the way in which uh, we apply the one-drop rule, and so on and so forth. Now, I think one interesting thing about all of this is that Americans tend to think about the history of a country as white versus non-white. And I think in many ways, that's not just an oversimplification, but actually a more fundamental mistake. As Michael Lind has suggested in the 1990s, uh, in certain respects, it makes more sense to think of American history as black versus non-black because of a very specific and extreme way in which African-Americans have been excluded. And that, I think, helps us understand more things about voting behavior of different demographic groups today, about why it is such a mistake to claim as a supposedly neutral fact that America will be majority-minority by 2045, about why it's confused to think of demography as destiny in political terms, uh, and so on. Damon Linker, your turn. Well, great. Uh, it's great to talk to you about all these topics, Yasha. They're important, and your book is an excellent treatment of them, both in and of itself and as a provocation for further thinking. I guess one thing I'd like to put on the table has to do with a related point to the one that uh, Bill and Mona just brought up and that you responded to. That has to do with the way we focus on different kinds of differences as being the the kind of the salient thing. So your book emphasizes kind of ethnic diversity a lot. There are, of course, also, uh, you know, in one of the stories that we often tell about the history of the rise of liberal democracy out of the religious civil wars, we talk a lot about religious diversity. So, you know, 4,000 years and more, the European continent had a kind of uniform Catholic Christian identity as the 
by far the most dominant political force, cultural force. And then you had the Protestant Reformation, which kind of shattered that unity. And you had the religious civil wars that went on and killed many people. And eventually you have writers and political actors who respond to this by coming up with theories of liberal democracy that will sort of try to put the state out of the business of adjudicating between uh, different religious sects you have the, the rise of religious toleration as an idea that allows for a kind of deeper unity based on individual rights to allow a kind of peace to be found in a context of diversity. Uh, and then, of course, in the American context, things are often talked about in terms of racial diversity, as we were just discussing. I'm wondering about ideological fissures, kind of in their own terms, not seen as a secondary determinant kind of that follows from ethnic diversity, but actually can become the main one. I bring that up because one thing that I've noticed in some of my own writing on these kinds of topics about liberalism is that, uh, you know, as everyone has acknowledged, these categories do shift and change and the ones that become more important change over time. And one thing I think we've started to see is how at one point, say, say, and, uh, and I'll, I'll give some American examples to illustrate this. Earlier in the 20th century, you had a lot of immigration from parts of Europe that were more Catholic. And so early in the 20th century, you had a lot of debates about uh, Catholicism and Protestantism and then different denominations of Protestantism and they, all these different groups disagreed with each other and they needed to find accommodation with one another so that we could all get along in this country. But that changed as the 20th century went on where ideological differences came to be more prominent. So you had now, and, and this is true today too, that you have conservatives within different Protestant denominations and Catholics who are conservative and more conservative Orthodox Jews and uh, at least before 9-11, even conservative Muslims, those groups kind of all see more in common with each other than they do with progressives in their own denominations. And I think that, at least in this country, that has become very much kind of the fault line more than the ethnic one that I think liberals are always bringing up and pointing out, oh, you know, Trump succeeded just because he tapped into this racism and he's just all about white identity and so forth. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. But it's also true that the Republicans are making appeals to voters based on a lot of things. And there already has started to be some signs that uh, Latino voters are actually responding to that. And, you know, what if we end up seeing over the next decade a kind of multiracial uh, coalition supporting Republicans? What would that do to the thesis of your book? And I just talked way too long, and I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, all, in the, all for the sake of a good conversation. Yeah, well, I think it would confirm the thesis of my book. So the point of my book is that it is very difficult to build ethnically and religiously diverse democracies, and that religion part is, is a key component of, of a conceptual framework of a book as well. But it is a real challenge. But actually, if you understand how hard this has historically been, and if you look at how badly it has gone wrong in so many times and places, then you can go back and look at our current reality in the United States and actually be quite optimistic, be quite sanguine. Mona mentioned a few of those points earlier. There's a weird debate about integration where uh, some people on the right or the far right are saying, oh, these immigrants were not learning English, you know, they're just living in these enclaves who were speaking Spanish or Chinese. And then there's some people on the progressive left who are saying, that's wonderful, they shouldn't learn English. Why should we allow this oppressive language to be imposed on everybody? Wouldn't it be great if everybody just spoke these different languages? This just completely misses the sociological reality of this country, which is that there's a good number of first-generation immigrants who don't ever fully learn the language because they come here as adults and they may come from a country where we didn't have much educational opportunity. But the kids nearly always prefer to speak English than their native language, even when they're speaking with their siblings or their cousins or other people with a similar cultural background. And their grandchildren, third immigrants by the third generation, barely speak the language of origin at all. Only about 1% of third-generation immigrants still retain any mastery of Spanish or Chinese or whatever other language it might be. 
In the same way, we're seeing that, as Mona mentioned, there's this odd confluence of pessimism about the socioeconomic progress of immigrants, where people on the far right sometimes argue that immigrants coming to the United States today from Mexico and El Salvador and Vietnam and Kenya are somehow inferior and that they're not succeeding because there's something supposedly wrong with them. That's a position that my friends and colleagues in the mainstream and on the left tend to reject rightly. But then they sort of embrace a similar form of pessimism, which is that these immigrants can't succeed because not being white, they're so discriminated against and so excluded that they don't stand a chance. And while there's undoubtedly some discrimination and exclusion, that again is simply not backed up by the evidence. It turns out that these immigrants are rising the ranks about as quickly as Italian and Irish immigrants did a hundred years ago. Uh, so both of these forms of pessimism simply don't seem to be entirely right. Now, more broadly, I spent a good amount of time in this book arguing, and I think especially recording a few days after Buffalo, this is important, that a lot of the racialist way we now talk about the demographic future of this country is a deeply dangerous idea. So the replacement theory, the conspiracy theory of a great replacement, claims that there's this deliberate attempt to replace the U.S. population and that this will put whites in a minority and then everything will change. That is a crazy conspiracy theory. But it has a more respectable cousin, which actually has been widely embraced by Democrats and Republicans, by liberals and conservatives and progressives. And that is the idea that just objectively, the United States will be majority-minority by about 2045, and that this will give a rising demographic majority to Democrats. Now, I don't believe that this rising demographic majority will materialize. If you look at the politics of the 1960s, Irish Americans very reliably voted for the Democratic Party. Now they reliably vote for the Republican Party. If you look at 2020, the reason why Donald Trump was competitive is that he significantly increased his share of the vote among every non-white voter demographic, especially Latinos, but not only Latinos. And Joe Biden became the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States because he significantly increased his share of the vote among white voters relative to Hillary Clinton in 2016. So we just don't know what the politics of 2040 or 2045 is going to look like in demographic terms. But I want to go a step further than that, because to apply the one-drop rule, which has an obvious historical salience in the United States because of its role in slavery, and either assume that it will always bind the self-conception of somebody who might be, let's say, three quarters white and one quarter black, who might have three white and one black grandparents, is to make a hazardous prediction about what the future will look like. To try and apply it to immigrant groups that don't share that same history, to apply it to the many mixed-race Americans who don't have black ancestors, uh, starts to make little sense. To assume that people who have European ancestry, but who've lived in Mexico or in South America for a number of generations, and who were very much considered white within their own political system, who very much now consider themselves white if they're asked a question, will somehow metaphysically be part of a monolithic group of people of color, is not sociology, it's a form of magical thinking. And I think that on this point, we should be much, much more careful, precisely because the sometimes triumphalist or sometimes alarmist predictions of this demographic change bears this eerie similarity to the conspiracy theories of the far right. Thankfully, that doesn't, in fact, describe uh, the most fundamental divisions in our society, which are often based around race in certain respects, but much, much more complicated than this division of America into whites versus people of color. And so when you look at all of that in conjunction, then I come to a somewhat similar point to you, Damon, which is to say ethnic and religious diversity is a real challenge for democracy to sustain. Any look at history shows that. But actually, we're doing surprisingly well at that. We should be much more sanguine about the progress we've made at that. And that is particularly visible when you look in the heart of society, what's actually going on in towns and cities uh, across America. At the same time, when you look at the political level, you see this incredibly dangerous and shrill division into two super factions, Democrats and Republicans, with deep polarization, deep mutual hatred, and on one side more than the other, 
a willingness to disobey the basic rules of democracy in order to win. And so my concern about the future of the United States absolutely is that we might end up with the rise of authoritarian populism that actually managed to consolidate its power or with a stolen election, or even with significant levels of political violence amidst a constitutional crisis. But I do not think that this will in any clean way cleave one demographic or ethnic or religious group against another. All right. I have another question about ideology, which I will come to just after this break. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends. And while they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, they have dander, they have hair. Well, let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. And there are no filters to buy, and it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom. We do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. And honestly, of course, I'm very diligent about cleaning the cat's litter box, but with the Eden Pure, you would never know it was there. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord, and so they are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. So Yasha, you mentioned in the book, and we've mentioned so far in this discussion, there are ways that demagogues can stoke ethnic, religious, political, and other kinds of divisions. And certainly we have seen a lot of that lately, much more, I would venture to say, than in the recent past, you know, with the great replacement theory being an example coming from the right. But you also address it from the other side in the book, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind discussing that now, namely... There is an abandonment in some precincts on the left of the entire idea of individual rights as opposed to group rights. And you responded, you pushed back against that pretty forcefully. So I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. So let me talk about this first of all, just in the context of the history of diverse societies and political science more broadly, and, and and then responding to the situation in the United States more specifically. So I talk about these three modes of failure of uh, diverse societies historically. One of them is domination, as we saw in the United States with slavery. The second is a sort of structured anarchy in which the state never really gets going because of conflict between lots of different groups, which don't trust each other to have uh, access to the resources that believers of power would give them. So that's what helps to explain where we are today in countries of weak states like Afghanistan or Somalia. But the third is a deep social fragmentation in which countries cease to think of themselves as being composed of individual citizens, but reconceptualize themselves as these sort of federations of tribes or Uh, as an association of associations, a group of groups. And we see that very clearly and very strongly in in a place like Lebanon, where to keep the peace, Shias and Sunnis and Maronite Christians said, we will divide power at the elite level uh, across the country and then devolve a lot of the most important decisions uh, to the groups. So what laws govern you when you get married or divorced, or what laws govern the education of your children depends not on whether you're a Lebanese citizen, but whether you're a Shia or a Sunni or a Maronite Christian. Now, I think that this has had really disastrous consequences. It's made it very difficult to weaken the hold that these identities have 
over people. It's made it incredibly hard for members of East Asian groups to cooperate in any meaningful way. I have a Lebanese acquaintance or friend who married a woman from a different religious group and the state for years did not even recognize the marriage. And it failed to keep the peace. It failed in its most important goal of averting civil war because, as many of you will know, Lebanon did have a protected and bloody civil war. So I think we need to know at the theoretical level that the way to make diverse democracies work, the way to ensure that they don't fall into civil war or conflict, is not to find this peace deal among warring groups and give up on the idea of individual citizenship. And within the United States, I do worry about the way in which the important and understandable desire to overcome the long-term impact of the oppression that parts of the population have experienced. But there's a temptation to use that as a reason to really make the way in which Americans are treated habitually depend on their ethnic belonging or their skin color. And so just the other day, I was on a panel with somebody from the White House who just very unreflexively and without really explaining to the audience what they meant by that, talked about equity as you know a set of conscious policies adopted by the government to achieve the same outcomes across demographic groups, which requires very explicit ways of saying, uh, you're going to get this benefit or not get this benefit based on the color of your skin. And I think that that includes and, and raises some of the same dangers that we've seen in these other political contexts of encouraging people to double down on identity. I think it will often actually end up benefiting the majority group because once politics is about an explicit negotiation over which group should get which rights and privileges. There's no particular reason to think that it should be minority groups that win those negotiations. And most importantly, I do think that it's an abandonment of some of the most basic values that we collectively hold. I tend to be skeptical about constitutional discourse in the United States. So I don't think, for example, that morally speaking, the right way to think about whether or not we should have a death penalty is to debate whether the death penalty consists cruel and unusual punishment. That's just not the most hopeful moral framework for me. But in this particular case, I think the, the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court and the moral framework that it has laid out is actually very clear, which is that we should start with a presumption established by the 14th Amendment that whenever possible, the state should avoid treating its citizens differently according to the color of their skin or other ascriptive identities. There may be exceptions to that general rule, as there are exceptions to every rule. There may be circumstances in which the state has a compelling interest to act in ways which would require taking race into consideration. But when it does so, it has to fulfill two conditions. First, that there's no race-neutral alternative that it could choose to pursue those same goals. And second, that whatever race-conscious policy it chooses is as narrowly tailored as possible. That is a framework on which everybody from Anton Scalia to Ruth Bader Ginsburg have historically agreed. I think it's the right way of thinking about it. And I'm worried that in our politics at the moment, from some quarters, that is no longer the way to think about it. But rather, there is a pride and emphasis on trying to make the state act on what is your race when it is trying to figure out whether to prioritize you for vaccines for COVID, whether to give you life-saving pills that help deal with COVID infection, and in all kinds of other really important life and death circumstances. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that uh, under the Biden administration, the Small Business Administration announced that it would prioritize giving grants to companies owned by Blacks, women, Hispanics, and Asians. And that is exactly the sort of thing which will provoke a backlash. All right. Well, thank you so much for all of this. Thanks for writing the book. Really, really stimulating. And we will come back and discuss the results from the primary elections this week after this message. Do you feel like you're living in a media bubble? Like it's harder than ever to find views that challenge your own? That's where the lost debate steps in. 
It's a podcast and a YouTube show for political eclectics who crave exposure to a diversity of beliefs and perspectives. The Lost Debate covers the latest news, ideas, and trends without the bias and manipulation from the mainstream and alternative media. It's hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal who fought Republicans at the ballot box and then fought alongside them for charter schools. Also, Corey Bradford, a progressive political organizer turned TikTok star who used to host a Fox News radio show. And also Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. They come from across the political aisle and from different generations, but come together for debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Thursdays. Find The Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. All right, Damon, I'm going to start with you. Right now, as we speak, there is a too-close-to-call race from your home state of Pennsylvania. Mehmet Oz and Dave McCormick are neck and neck. There's going to be a recount. And, you know, there were a lot of mail-in ballots, as my friends at The Bulwark said in one of the secret podcasts that we produce. And, you know, some of those uh, people went to sleep at night, and one person was ahead, and then they woke up the next morning, and another person was ahead. I guess must have been some shenanigans, huh? Oh, absolutely. It was definitely (laughs) fraud going on here. Well, it, it is, it is somewhat ironic that, you know, a race involving one of the people that Trump endorsed is now embroiled in this kind of a thing, but you know, it happens. Uh, We are a narrowly divided country and sometimes things just line up so that you end up with 31.2% versus 31.1% or 1300 votes as we have here. We haven't even finished the original count, actually. I think there's still a couple of percentage points from Allegheny County in near Pittsburgh that uh, need to be counted before they have the final total, which then will become the recount after that. So we're not going to really have an answer to this for quite a while, I think, in that race. It isn't a striking race because you have, in this case, you have Oz, who Trump endorsed, and he couldn't get him over the finish line in a decisive way. That's an important thing to to recognize, especially since the guy he was running against, McCormick, you would think would be kind of a Trump guy, except that McCormick, well, that's because McCormick kind of comes from a hedge fund background and is a kind of a rich guy. He's also a carpetbagger like Oz is. McCormick flew in from Connecticut, whereas Oz, you know, jumped across the state line from New Jersey. It's really an amusing race. (laughs) But in the end, McCormick did much better than the polls were showing in the run-up to the election. He seemed to be fading slightly with Barnett, the very far-right candidate who seemed to be surging toward the end, kind of. She ended up underperforming forming at only about 24.7%. And McCormick seems to have gotten most of those votes. So if Trump had simply thrown in his chips with McCormick from the beginning, and McCormick, you know, he worked in the Bush administration, but he's doing what all the Republicans are doing these days and trying to portray himself as like a Trumpy guy. And, well, and his uh, wife worked for Trump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're like, you yeah. know, deep in Republican world here. So it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Trump to just say, yeah, I'm going to go for McCormick. And that might have, you know, made a much more decisive ending here. But of course, the only thing that Trump's loyalty for Trump is if you're a big television star. And so what we ended up here with is Trump endorsing Oz, and it, it sort of isn't working out that great for him. <laughs> so it's amusing. But of course, he, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, hog the microphone over the other big race in PA and Pennsylvania if you want to go to someone else. But at least I got to set up that the other person he endorsed in the state was Mastriano, who won very bigly to speak mm. Trump in the governor's race. And he's a complete 
lunatic and totally Trumpy. He's sort of the analog to Barnett, who ended up again fading and coming in a, a rather distant third in the Senate race. So in that race, you might think, well, Trump's kiss of approval really was decisive, but actually Mastriano was already way ahead by the time Trump endorsed him on the weekend before. So that doesn't really prove that Trump has all that much influence either, except in the indirect and very important respect that all Republicans seem to want to be mimicking and uh, aping Trump in what they say and how they act and the kinds of policies they pursue. So you could say that like the races in, in Pennsylvania on the Republican side show one in the same time that Trump's influence on the Republican Party continues to be enormous and fundamental and also, you know, a little shaky when it comes to uh, the man himself and the people that he chooses to embrace before the vote. So Bill Galston, Brian Katulis wrote in The Liberal Patriot that Trump has had mixed success in picking candidates, but all of the Republican candidates have picked Trump. And I think that sort of encapsulates it. Some of his endorsees have lost. There was this nutcase Janice McGeekin, uh, who was the lieutenant governor in Idaho and challenged the governor, and she went down to defeat Madison Cawthorn. There was a Trump-endorsed candidate in the Nebraska governor's race. This is a favorite of mine, Charles Herbster, the bull seaman king, who was accused by no less than eight women of inappropriate sexual behavior. So those people lost. On the other hand, everybody was keen to be seen as Trumpy. And you cannot get anywhere in the Republican Party now without being either an outright election denier or at least a Trump-adjacent sort of character, right? How do you see it? It's hard to see it differently. Mm -hmm. You know, Trumpism mm -hmm. without Trump has become the lingua franca of the Republican Party. And this is one of the ways in which fundamental realignments occur in American politics. When one political party embraces a new identity and then the rest of the political system organizes itself around that new identity, I am stunned not only by the rapidity, but by the extent to which Donald Trump was able to take his idiosyncratic personality equipped with positions that went against longstanding orthodoxy among Republican conservatives and turn it into the new orthodoxy of a totally transformed Republican Party. This deserves a lot more political science inquiry than it has gotten. Why the sort of Reagan conservative Republican Party turned out to be a rotten oak that was blown over by a big wind and the only real great replacement that's occurred in American politics is the great replacement of Reaganism with Trumpism. And uh, <laughs> I continue to be stunned. And especially when you're dealing with primary campaigns where the intensity of the base is really the determinant of the outcome, people who've tried to stand up to this trend in any way have just been mowed down. And I don't see any end to that in sight. I doubt very much that an overtly non-Trumpist candidate for the Republican nomination in 2024 will get anywhere, even though there's some very credible representatives of that creed. For example, the governor of my own state of Maryland, Larry Hogan, who is clearly gearing up to make a push in that direction. I think it's a better than even money bet that he'll run against either Trump or a bevy of Trumpists. But unless there are 10 of them and each one of them gets 6% uh, of the vote yeah. and you know, Hogan gets the remaining 40, which yeah. is improbable, I'm afraid that the changes wrought by Donald Trump are not reversible and that we're going to have to adjust to that and it won't be easy or pretty. This season and the last several seasons, frankly, are a great advertisement for nonpartisan primaries. Yasha, I want to direct your attention a little bit to the Democratic side. We had John Fetterman win the nomination for Senate in Pennsylvania. 
he supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, but he looks like and presents like a trucker for Trump. And voters seem to like that. And so there's a lot of talk about how he may be the Democratic Party's answer to Trumpism, which is, I'm skeptical, but anyway, there's that. But then there's this other problem, which is the Democrats wanting to flirt with the craziest Republican candidates because they assume what could possibly go wrong, that they'll be easier to beat. So this Mastriano guy who won the Republican nomination did so with an assist from Josh Shapiro, the state attorney general who ran unopposed for the Democratic nomination. But uh, he spent, uh, I don't know, the estimates range from between half a million to three quarters of a million bucks running an ad urging voters to choose Mastriano because he figured he'd be easier to beat. Now, Mastriano, he attended the stop. He not only denies the validity of the 2020 election, he attended the Stop the Steel rally. He chartered buses to take people. He continues to spread conspiracy theories related to voting machines. He wants to end all state contracts with the companies that were in charge in 2020. He spoke at a conference that featured QAnon themes, and he would require all Pennsylvanians to re-register to vote. Now, you know, you might say, well, yeah, that guy should be easy to beat. But is that a reliable and safe thing for any responsible politician to do in today's America to just assume that the nutcases can't get elected? No, this is absolutely irresponsible. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> look, let's not have a false equivalency here, but it's the Republicans who are going around saying stop the steal and boasting, as Mastriano has, about his ability to appoint a secretary of state who can reverse account and uh, basically undermine the integrity of the 2024 elections. But for Democrats who are rightly warning about this danger to then go and try to elevate the worst of those candidates is just morally wrong and strategically stupid. I mean, if you go back and look at all of the op-eds in the fall of 2015 and the spring of 2016, saying Trump is great for the Democratic Party because that guy can't possibly win. So thank God it's going to be Trump and not Scott Walker and not Marco Rubio because him will definitely beat. Well, that got us into an incredibly mm -hmm. dangerous place. And when I saw this reporting by Politico on the way in which the Josh Shapiro campaign has cut these attack ads that they aired in conservative parts of the state saying, Mastriano is terrible because, you know, he's a real Trump guy, basically, you know, helping him deliberately and consciously get elected. I have to say that I was really angry because let's hope that that pans out. Let's hope that this ensures that Mastriano loses. But if it doesn't, and if Mastriano becomes the governor of Pennsylvania, and it is one of the states in 2024 that throws us into a deep constitutional crisis, then I hope that Josh Shapiro will sleep very, very badly at night. I'm very angry about this. But let me let me uh, step back from my anger and make a couple of other points that I thought were interesting. I think Bill and, and the others are absolutely right that we now have Trumpism without Trump, that Trump is still around. And I think if he runs in 2024, he's likely to win the nomination. But his ideological stance, insofar as it exists, is now more influential in the party in many ways than he is himself. And that's a really interesting moment and a scary moment in American politics. I think one other interesting thing is that the nature of a Trumpism is a little bit different from how people want to portray it. So people want to portray it as a straightforward form of white supremacy or something like that. And I think it obviously courts racist elements. But it is interesting, both that Trump has proven to be surprisingly successful at broadening the ethnic coalition of a Republican party. Two polls now, the outlier polls, but it's nevertheless striking Hispanics are now more likely to vote for Republicans in the midterms than white voters. So that is a, a really interesting thing. But we haven't yet, I've never quite read anything that I found convincing about why it is that Trumpism actually is so deeply appealing to some non-white voters and particularly to Hispanics. But the second is that, as some studies have shown, Republican primary voters are actually very sympathetic to deeply conservative or far-right candidates who are non-white. And this is a really underplayed story. Uh, we saw this 
in the Pennsylvania primary with a clear majority of voters in the Senate primary voting for either a Muslim man from Turkey or a black woman. And I think sooner or later in America, we're going to get a black or perhaps a Latino or perhaps a Muslim uh, Republican presidential candidate. And it's going to fry everybody's brain and it might really hasten the long the kind of realignment that Bill Goldston has talked about. And it could allow Republicans, if that candidate is smart and places their cards right, to clean up in a very significant way. This has been a theme going back many, many years. Almost every presidential contest for a very long time has featured a boomlet for some African-American candidate. It happens pretty much with clockwork regularity. And part of that is that Republicans do smart from the accusation of being racist. And they want to prove that, no, if a black person agrees with me, then I'm all for them. So you're right that that's something that is misunderstood by a lot of people. Yeah. And, and part of that is insincere and strategic, right? Part of that is a way of being able to defend yes. yourself against that accusation. But it yes. also does indicate something about the nature of it, because, uh, you know, I've grown up in Europe among enough uh, old-fashioned classic racists. You know, they they don't care whether somebody of a race they hate agrees with them or not. They don't want them anywhere close to power. So it does tell us something important about the nature of a political movement, even if it is strategic in certain ways, even if it is this defensive response yes. against those accusations. And even if it does also, it should be acknowledged, contain genuine racists as well within the coalition but it doesn't apply to absolutely all of them. There are lots of shades. All right. Um, let us now turn to our highlights and lowlights of the week. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Welcome back. All right, for our highlight and low light segment, I will start with Damon Linker. Well, uh, we didn't get a chance today to uh, talk about the war, Russia, Ukraine, and uh, all things related to that, although uh, events continue to move along in interesting ways. So I, I decided to make my low light this week a uh, calling out of the 11 Republican senators who voted against final passage of the bill to send $40 billion of additional aid to Ukraine. This again shows, I think, uh, you know, for instance, you had Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, was very strongly pushing for the most votes he could get on this. He very much is in this respect an old fashioned Republican who believes in a strong defense and certainly in a case where we're sort of lined up in a proxy conflict with Russia, who's that is aggressively mauling its neighbor. But it didn't matter. There clearly is a large fact of the Republican Party, a significant faction, both among voters and among elected representatives, all of them encouraged by certain media figures like Tucker Carlson. And the end result is we have, here's the list, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, John Boozman of Arkansas, Mike Braun of Indiana, Mike Crapo of Idaho, Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, Josh Hawley, no surprise there, of Missouri, Mike Lee of Utah, Cynthia Lummond of Wyoming, Roger Marshall of Kansas, Rand Paul of Kentucky, and Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Congratulations, my friends. You get the low light of the week from me. Ditto. Okay. <laughs> Bill Galston. Well, I'm going to echo Damon. I have a two-part low light of the week. The first is the now 57 Republicans in the House of Representatives 
who voted against aid to Ukraine. The number voting against aid to Ukraine when the conflict started, the number of Republicans was three. It has grown substantially with each subsequent aid tranche and reached, as I said, 57 in the most recent one. And many of the people who voted against the aid package were very frank about explaining what America first meant to them. And it meant, I don't care about the Ukrainians. That has the virtue of honesty and the vice of being morally disgraceful, but it is what it is. My other low light is something that we've already touched upon, and that is the easy victory of an election denier, Mr. Mastriano, for the Republican gubernatorial nomination. And when I say easy victory, I mean that he got about as many votes in the primary as the next three candidates put together. Wasn't even close. And the more strident he became, the more popular he became. Pennsylvania used to be a swing state made up of a moderate Democratic Party and a moderate Republican Party. And I think that Pennsylvania in that respect may be one of the states that repays really close study as a prism through which we can see the reorganization and realignment of American politics and the contrast, I regret to say, between the past and the present is not to the advantage of the present. The toleration for loons continues to expand. All right, Yasha Monk. Well, let me give you one low light, but then try and cheer us up with two highlights. The low light is the terrible shooting and terrorist attack in, in Buffalo, which shows us, again, how easy it is for racists and for extremists to take the lives of their fellow citizens. The small highlight is the one piece of evidence that throws a little bit in the face of what I think we all nevertheless believe, that Trumpism is really ruling the Republican Party. And that is the fact that at least one of the craziest of the Trumpists, Madison Cawthorn, has failed to win his battle to be renominated for Congress. There was one uh, small piece of light in an otherwise uh, politically dark week. The other highlight is an essay by a new friend of mine, Ibu Patel, who I shared a panel with when I was talking about my book in Chicago recently. And he wrote in, in the pages of the New York Times about what he wants his kids to learn about racism. And he recounts how his parents are immigrants from India who owned a small business. They had a few franchises for Subway, the sandwich shop. And when he came to college, he started to read a lot of critical race theory, and it helped to explain a lot of his experiences to him and a lot of as he saw in America to him. But slowly, he also came to see its real limitations. He went to see a play that had been written and performed by one of his professors, and he wanted to impress her. And so at the talkback session at the end of the play, he said, this is actually a racist play because uh, when this kid gets scolded, he goes to his own room. What about all of the kids that don't have their own rooms? How dare you make those kinds of assumptions? But, you know, it's a lot harder to create than it is to criticize. And, you know, if you want to do better, why don't you try to write a play that you think is more deserving of praise? And he started to recognize the way in which some of his education had really pushed him to deconstruct rather than to build up. And so he ends up in a position which he says that, you know, think about race is one important lens on America, but there's also other very important lenses. And that uh, what we should try to do is to be constructive and to build a better future together. And so he, he ends up concluding, I don't want my kids to shy away from confronting racism, but I don't want whatever racism they might experience to make them lose sight of all of the other identities and privileges. Above all, I want my two sons to understand the responsible citizenship in a diverse democracy is not principally about noticing what's bad, it's about constructing what's good. You need to defeat the things you do not love by building the things you do. And that I think is such a constructive and inspiring way of thinking about how we can try to build a better country together. Yasha, we should have you on every week. I'm happy to come back <laughs> Thank you week. for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would like to just give a tip of the hat to Derek Thompson, 
who wrote a piece in The Atlantic this week, What's Behind America's Shocking Baby Formula Shortage. And uh, in a few brisk paragraphs, he explained it was a bacteria which caused the closing of that Abbott plant. It was the virus which has screwed up our uh, supply and demand worldwide. Uh, of course, COVID. And then it was a combination of poor regulation and bad trade policies. And it is notable that there's plenty of formula on the shelves in Canada and in Mexico. And because of our trade policies and some of our regulatory policies, we were not getting access to it when we had an emergency. And this is a lesson for not just the Trump people who, and by the way, Trump's trade deal his renegotiation of NAFTA made this problem worse. But it's not just the Trump people. It's also the Biden people who are always saying that their goal is to make America first, to uh, build it here, to buy it here, to make ourselves autonomous and not dependent on other countries. And you know what? You find out in an emergency that that can be a really dangerous place to be. And it's far better to have diverse supplies from all over the world that are flexible and that can respond in an emergency such as we have had. And I hope that's what people take away from this experience. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Yasha Monk. Also, I want to recognize our producer, Katie Cooper, and Joe Armstrong, who is our sound engineer. I want to thank all of you for listening, and we will return next week. I will not return next week. We will have a special guest host, A.B. Stoddard, because I'm taking the week off because my son is getting married. So I will see you the following week, and I hope it's a good one for all of you.